to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you Diet Culture and Other Intersections of Social Work and Nutrition. And in the words of Christy Harrison, it's really hard to fight the patriarchy when you're starving. Stay with us. We are excited to have Mel, aka at Ditch Your Diet on Instagram and TikTok with us today. Yeah, we're very excited to have you, Mel. Um, we don't know exactly how many years ago we met, but it was a few years ago, definitely pre-pandemic. And I remember uh, chatting with Mel and just being so interested in, in, in her and what she does. Uh, and Mel is a registered dietitian with 13 years of experience, and she's also a non-diet coach. Ooh. I yeah. would love to know more about that. Tell me what a non-diet coach Tell me is. more. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to get into that, and I can't wait to share more with you guys. This is something I am so passionate about and has really transformed my career and how I feel about nutrition and our bodies, my body. It's been amazing. Yeah. As we get get ready to that event to this conversation um jennifer and i have some questions for you today uh, and we have also asked our social media followers what they would like to ask a dietitian and we received a great response and very interesting questions so we'll start off with some just general questions about what uh you know diet culture is and what a non-dietitian does and then we'll dive in more into the questions that are our followers um, sent us and we'll just, you know, have a, a great chat about all this great topics that um, sometimes are like a little taboo, you know, like the, I think uh, diet and food and nutrition, there's still, um, there's a lot of, especially in the Latino community, uh, very taboo. So we're excited to have you and, and have this conversation. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. All right. So we'll just we'll start by you telling us what is diet culture and what is a non-dietitian, non-diet dietitian. <laughs> I think that's a really great starting point because diet culture is all around us. We don't even see it for what it is. So this is my definition. Different people out there are going to have their interpretation. But mine is, is that diet culture is this pervasive belief in our society that having the smallest body possible, pursuing mm. thinness is normal ideal, expected. And it doesn't matter at what cost to your mental, emotional, or frankly, physical health. Mm -hmm. And then as a non-diet dietitian, I am someone who believes very strongly that people can eat well and take the best care of their body without having to follow the strict rules of a diet, without having to follow strict you know, macro plans and following certain exercise regimen. I think we need to take that pressure off of ourselves and learn how to take care of ourselves in a way that is sustainable and that is gentle and that is frankly joyful. It doesn't have to feel so horrible all the time. And we, again, that's diet culture where it feels normal. We expect that we should be thinking about food all the time. We should be forcing ourselves to go to the gym and get that workout in. That's, um, I'm just curious, how, how did you become a non-diet dietitian? Was this part of your, uh, your training and your education, or is this something that happened after your education that you're like, you know what, this is, this is uh, something that I, I want to deviate a little bit from the traditional um, education that I received as a dietitian and dive more into with the non-diet dietitian? That is such a great question, and I am absolutely going against the grain here. Okay. There is a growing group of dietitians who are embracing the non-diet intuitive eating frameworks. Mm -hmm. However, this is not traditional at all. This is not something that I was learned or was taught in school. It's all something that I've done on my own um, with, through continuing education and then through my own journey. In graduate school, I was really struggling because I knew all the logic, all the facts, all, you know, the interventions for how to eat healthy and be mm -hmm. this perfect nutrition, uh, you know, health icon. But I wasn't able to follow it for myself. Mm -hmm. I was still binging. I, mm -hmm. My weight was fluctuating. I felt guilty every time I ate. And that's when I discovered the book Intuitive Eating. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the main, um, those two authors are one of the main people in this space, in this non-diet space. And so that kind of led everything. And so right as I entered the workforce as a registered dietitian, I still had that in my back pocket. That was that was a framework, a mindset that I already had. Um, and so 
it was a lot of unlearning from mm-hmm. everything that I was taught in school because everything you're taught in school is rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a right way to do it and this is what it looks like and you better figure out how to get on track. Yeah. Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about diet culture being all around us, so it's certainly going to affect all the different pieces of us and how we show up and what we bring to the table. What kind of links have you seen between emotional or mental health with eating behaviors? You know, so how does diet impact your mental health and then vice versa? How does mental health impact the way that you eat and navigate food? Oh, this is such a good question. I could probably talk about it forever. So just, you know, (laughs) let me know. (laughs) Um, Dieting absolutely has a net negative impact on our mental health. Now, here's my caveat. There's always going to be a small percentage of people who can restrict what they eat, count their macros, you know, try and have these certain fitness goals, and it really doesn't affect them in a negative way. But those people truly are a minority. For the majority of people, this intentional deprivation and restriction, trying to eat less food than what your body is asking for, trying to force yourself to do more movement than feels good or intuitive is going to lead to conflict. And instead of you know, because of diet culture, instead of realizing, oh, this is outside pressure that's forcing me to do these things or make me feel this way that I have to eat less food, they blame themselves. I'm lacking motivation. I'm lacking willpower. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my body or with Mm. my appetite. Mm. And that has a whole negative host of consequences. It increases anxiety. It increases depression. It, you know, decreases sense of well-being, increases body dissatisfaction. There's a, there's just a lot of research out there that's showing that trying to follow restrictive diets that do not feel intuitive are not helpful. And it's interesting. It's not something, you know, as you were talking about your educational journey, I think one of the things that I am grateful for about most social work education is we're by and large not learning huge theories and rules that we wouldn't be able to impact ourselves or that strategies that we would never choose to adopt into our own life for the most part. It feels pretty authentic while we're going through it. Most social workers came to the field because of something that Mm -hmm. impacted them. Um, So they have to do their own work, of course, but it is a little bit different of a journey. But this is something, you know, social workers follow the biopsychosocial perspective. And when we think biological, we often think health conditions Mm -hmm. and we're not taught to ask questions about eating. But if we don't know that a client is trying to survive off of 800 calories Mm -hmm. a day and Maybe it's not something that's coming up in their initial assessment, but if they're not eating, if they have a completely destructive relationship with food, you know, there's going to be other impacts. But what kind of questions would you start to ask somebody or do you think social workers could ask to start to understand what somebody's relationship with food might look like so that this piece of the puzzle doesn't get missed? That's a great question. Um, What I like to start with my clients is just asking them, can you tell me about a typical day of eating for you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want the energy to be very relaxed. People can immediately tense up if this is a really touchy area for them. Um, And sometimes, as we know, people tell us the answer that they think we want to hear and not the reality. And so you can kind of, if you're sensing that there's a little bit of, what is it called, um, Hesitation, yeah, or hesitation, shame or even of sharing, self-censoring going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, see if there's other ways that you can ask about it. You know, and I always like to reassure people: I've heard it all. Nothing <laughs> surprises me. There's no right or wrong here. I, you know, and genuinely, I want to know what their life is like and what their patterns are because I want to be able to help them make changes that are sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big word that I use a lot. So another question that I like to ask, and this is a good way to get an idea of like how stressed they are, how much headspace this is taking for them, is can you tell me how much of your day are you worrying about food, making decisions about food, or your body? Mm-hmm. And usually anything over, I'd say, 10, 20% of the day, that's, you know, maybe a yellow flag. Um, Because really, when we think about it, food should not, I I believe food should not be that stressful. Mm -hmm. You should be able to make decisions relatively quickly and that you do not need to agonize over every bite or every meal. And so the work I do with my clients is getting them to move away from that constant over analysis, Mm -hmm. even paralysis, um, and just being able to make some choices confidently Mm -hmm. and trusting the choices that they're making. And 
you know, in the in the field of mental health and in social services, we know by now we know very well how um, childhood experiences impact. Um, adult relationships, not only with each other, but also relationships with food as well. Um, so as we're talking about, you know, the impact of diet and mental health, um, it, I mean, we already know that there's, uh, you know, that, that link between childhood trauma and disordered eating. Uh, but is, that, is this something that you often see in your practice, um, like some of these uh, patterns of behaviors or uh, learning that people carry from their childhood um, regarding eating behaviors and they carry them to adulthood? Absolutely. I am not... I'm not a therapist, um, so I do I make my make sure that's very clear when working with my clients. But you know, we talk about food. We talk about their history of food and their families and how that shaped how they approach food and eating now in their bodies. And I would say all of them have some type of trauma. Mm-hmm. I'm learning the difference between big T, little T type mm-hmm. traumas. Um, but something that is really interesting to consider is that being put on a diet as a child. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, is considered yeah. traumatic, and it makes sense because children don't know why people are restricting food from them or trying to make them go to these meetings or trying to make them work out when their brothers, sisters, siblings, nobody else, nobody else in the household is having to do those things. Um, there's also... Again, I am not a facts and figures type of girl, but (laughs) my memory doesn't work that way. Um, But there are some really interesting studies coming out that study those ACE experiences Mm -hmm. Uh and how it is absolutely correlated with the much increased risk of developing morbid obesity. Mm -hmm. I am not a fan of using the BMI to measure anything, Mm -hmm. but in research that is the terms and you know that's that's how they they sort their data so unfortunately i have to repeat that here yeah no. yeah yeah and i think about you know as you're talking about some of those big t and little t experiences and kind of the spectrum of stress and trauma that people experience you know even if it wasn't them directly if you grew up in a household you know with a parent who would eat one almond and be like i'm mm-hmm. absolutely stuffed i couldn't possibly eat another thing or how could you eat all that on your plate and those kind of messages even if they are at the parent themselves you know they are the things that start to swim in our head for the rest of our lives I don't think we can understate how much impact our primary caregivers relationship mm-hmm. with food has with our own mm-hmm. and you know we were talking earlier um off off the recording mm-hmm. <laughs> the record yeah <laughs> just about how children are innate intuitive eaters children mm-hmm. know how to listen to their bodies and it's the caretaker that doesn't trust mm-hmm. and the caretaker says oh no you can't be full look at all this food that's left on your plate or no you definitely are full stop asking for more you ate all the food off your plate and that's really confusing to us as small children because we're trying to listen to our body and our physical experience is not being validated by what's happening in our environment with our caretaker. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the work I do is to help my clients reconnect with that, reconnect with their physical signs and be able to rebuild that trust. Yeah. And I think, you know, right along with that, whether it's a diagnosable eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors, what are some of the first kind of steps that somebody might take to start to recreate that healthy relationship with food or with their own body signals? So the first thing that I work with with my clients is restoring a somewhat normal eating pattern. And the idea behind that is we cannot really sort out what's a problem versus what is just hunger. Mm-hmm. You know, are you really a binge eater or are you just hungry? Yeah. <laughs> right. What, what's oh. considered binge, binge eating? It's a, yeah. What the, by whose standards? Exactly. Yeah. Out of control to who? Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are you um, compulsive and obsessed with food or are you underfed? Mm. You know, yeah. so many people swear that they are addicted to food or certain foods like sugar, sweets, you know, the quote unquote junk foods, when really it's like, girl, you haven't eaten enough carbs, like you're mm. starving mm-hmm. and you're working out and you have a really demanding job in home life. No wonder you want to tear the kitchen and pantry apart when you're home at night mm-hmm. because you have been under fueled f- all day today. And then, you know, for the past 10 years of your life. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so yes, getting mm-hmm. people eating consistent meals. That's where I, I teach a lot. I'm a big proponent of meal planning. Mm-hmm. And this is not your diet's meal planning. That's way too restrictive. It's trying to get people to conform to eating in a certain way. This is just taking some time to consider what you like to eat, what's available, when it makes sense to have those meals and snacks. What is what is speaking of of, of that? Um, what is your take on food logs? Um, there's you know there's so many apps out there that encourage people to track everything they eat in a day to have an idea of how much how many calories they're consuming, etc. Uh, what's your take on that? Especially for people who want to create a healthy relationship with food, is that detrimental to being <laughs> an intuitive either eater? I think so. Okay. I think so. You know, when we think about our grandparents, did they log their food? No. No. Yeah. No. Um, do animals need to log their food? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, I think using a tracker, again, some people can absolutely use it as a tool. You know, they maybe have certain fitness goals. They're athletes. They need to hit certain macros. Uh-huh. But for the majority of people, putting that hyper-focus on what you're eating and how you're eating, there's always going to be an element of guilt and deprivation. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not hitting your goals that the little computer machine says, well, you feel guilty. Um, Or if you, and if you are, there's an element of deprivation and and restraint and willpower that has to be used. And that is a finite resource that only lasts for so long. So eventually people go all out. They do what they, you know, like a cheat day, a cheat meal Mm -hmm. or a binge. And then they feel all guilty again and then they double down on the tracking and the restricting the cycle yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and you know it's really remarkable because only a few days of using some type of tracker like my fitness pal that can lead to like an immediate the change in the mental health Mm -hmm. people are already like feeling compulsive about it and feeling like they have to check in and log in and they want to know they want to get that validation that they're doing something right um yeah and then there's a shame if they don't stick to mm-hmm. the calories and or they overdo it. And there's a shame the next mm-hmm. day. And, yeah. and they start double or what is it? They start second guessing everything mm-hmm. they eat. Mm-hmm. They cannot. They, I'm saying like even within a week, you know, people have told me, well, I don't I don't feel comfortable just eating this breakfast anymore. I need to know what's in it before wow. I can eat it comfortably. And if they eat it without tracking, it leads to a lot of those negative emotions mm-hmm. and discomfort that weren't there before they started tracking. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and speaking of another thing that it's it has been very popular over the last years in terms of dieting, and uh, I think that goes along with tracking calories as well, is intermittent fasting. Uh, we see it all over social media. Um, a lot of people swear by it. Um, I I have my reservations on it. I, I still feel <laughs> like it's uh, uh, an accepted way of starving yourself. Um, but it's, it's so popular. And so many people say like, no, this is the way that the body uh, resets and whatnot. So what, what's your take on intermittent fasting? Um, my initial reaction is I don't like it either. I feel like it is a diet disguised as some type of lifestyle hack or mm. some type of return to nature weirdness. Yeah. You know, people are always, um, that's a fallacy, right? Like that natural is best, things like that. Um, typically, my how I, how I talk to people about intermittent fasting is that when your body is fed, when you've reached your enough for the day, food is no longer appealing. Mm-hmm. But if you're constantly running in deficit, well, then, yeah, you're always going to be wanting to think about food. So to me, intermittent fasting is used as a dieting tool, as a manipulation to try and get yourself to eat less food. Usually the goal is for weight loss. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are saying, no, it also has other health benefits. I would just say that the research on that is so scarce at this point that Mm -hmm. that's not something that I could recommend, especially knowing how triggering it can be Mm -hmm. for that diet downward spiral um, and how triggering it can be for binge eating. The other thing that I want to say about intermittent fasting is that everybody I know who's done it has stopped. They have not been able to maintain Mm. it. This is anecdotal. Yeah, Yeah, it's not sustainable. And also what I noticed is that it got more extreme. It Mm. went from, you know, what is it, the Mm 16-8 window to... I, I 24 don't know hours the, some people are like right. 20, like if you do full fasting two days out of the week for 24 hours oh like how is that sustainable well that's not well, how realistic is that, yeah how is that healthy yeah, yeah going to go for 24 hours just having 
coffee and water. Yeah. Black coffee and water. Yeah, that, that's that's vodka, Tic Tacs, cigarettes, mm-hmm. yeah. also included. <laughs> it's it's very disordered, yeah. and that that's my opinion. Um, that being said, like I said, when you reach kind of your done for the day thing, you might naturally go 10, 11 hours before your next meal, you mm-hmm. know, between dinner and breakfast. Um, but why do we have to market it and turn it into this this thing mm-hmm. <laughs> to sell books and, and programs and, you know, little teas to sip on while you're waiting for your window to open? Oh my God. It's very, um, and I've noticed it's very popular with men. Have you guys mm-hmm. noticed yeah. that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I think it's popular for people, too, who want to lose weight, but they don't want to think a lot about food. Mm. But the issue with that is that's still not sustainable. No. That's not sustainable. How can you get all the nutrients you need in one meal a day or in two meals every two days Mm -hmm. or whatever people are doing? Yeah. I think, you know, as we're talking about, like, the shame and the tracking and things like that, you know, what I've noticed from the clients who do it is it feels like one thing instead of 10 things. If I have to track my calories, if I have to make meals according to these macros, I can't handle it. But I can do one thing. I can starve myself for 12 hours, Mm -hmm. and then I can feel successful. then, Then I can raid the pantry and the fridge without guilt because I did the thing, right? And it's like, oh, maybe not quite. Not if you are denying and restricting and feeling awful for the 12 hours prior to the binge and then feeling awful after the binge. You know, I'm hearing two bad things here. Yeah. <laughs> and one pretend win. Yeah. Like, how how is that working for you? How is that making eating easier and low stress? Mm-hmm. Is it? Most people would say no. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, I think one of the things that is near the opposite of it, and I'm glad is gaining more intention, uh, is intuitive eating. So tell us a little bit about intuitive eating. How would you kind of walk somebody through that a little bit? Um, And I know that there is kind of a growing profession Mm -hmm. around it. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, continuing education. Um, So tell us a little bit about intuitive eating and the pathway if people wanted to learn even more than they're going to get today. Absolutely. So full disclosure, I am not a certified intuitive eating counselor. Um, This is something that I'm pursuing, but I'm not there yet. So just want to put that out there. Um, I'm very happy to discuss this. So intuitive eating is a framework that focuses on trusting your internal cues to guide your body about when and how much to eat rather than the rules of a diet. And so it's really focusing on retrusting your body, turning inward instead of following those outside guidelines and rules and pressures. Um, this is a framework that was developed by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch in 1995. And they, I think, came out with just their fourth edition of that wow. book. Mm-hmm. And so that is the book that was life changing for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it changed everything personally and professionally um, to become To become a certified IE pro is what they call it. You can become a counselor or a lay facilitator. Mm -hmm. And there's a different pathway depending on what your education background is. Um, Social workers can. um, I think I saw dentists on there, yoga instructors. Yeah, they're very open. You know, this is a framework that if you understand and learn the principles, it can be really beneficial. You guys are on TikTok. I see dentists shaming people about eating carbohydrates <laughs> and eating sugar. So I definitely see how there can be a role for having this framework in oh, your totally. practice. Totally. I see dentists shame people about oral sex as a side topic. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So did, do they? Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and you like, guys. As long as you brush your teeth out. <laughs> right. Where they're like, they know. Right. Yeah. They know. <laughs> How do they know? (laughs) It's the roof of your mouth. Um, And this is diet culture, right? Where everybody has an opinion. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they know. And the end game is always, you know, this perfect diet, very little carbohydrates, living off of air and, you know, sprigs of like arugula or something. Like, it's just, you know, it's it's very restrictive. Um, So the process is relatively straightforward. There is the book that you would read with a self-study exam. And then you would have to get, um, listen to Evelyn um, Triboli does a, webinar series that you would have to attend in small groups. And then there's some supervision and that I think can be one-on-one or in a group setting as well. Um, the t- I don't know if you guys care about this um, from the website. Yeah. The total cost is between like $1,200 to $1,600, okay. depending okay. on, I think, if you're doing one-on-one supervision or more group coaching. 
Got it. How long does it take uh, in average? To do the whole thing? That I'm not sure. I think it depends because the webinars are not available year round. Mm-hmm. I think she does them like maybe three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you might want to include this in the end, but there's the IE Pro is the website that you would go to to f- like see the steps and yeah. print out the instructions and all that stuff. Yeah, we always include all the resources that we talk about on the uh, website. Uh, the episode for the for the website, so um, all all the books and and links and and all the great stuff that we've been talking about, it's going to be on our website under the episode information. Yep. And then I did want to add something else. I think it's so important for whether you're a dietitian or a social worker, if you are truly interested in this work, you have to do the work on yourself. Mm. Amen. Practice by modeling. (laughs) You have to unlearn the diet culture in yourself, the body shame, the weight stigma, because this is so deep in our culture. And you can cause some, you know, inadvertent or, you know, maybe outright Mm -hmm. intentional harm. Yeah. Um, you know, an example is I am reading this really fantastic book on emotional eating. This is Mm -hmm. some of my own personal, you know, professional Mm -hmm. development. The first half of the book is fantastic. The second half of the book is a train wreck. Mm. The woman is advocating, you know, a very restrictive diet, whole foods, plant-based, refers to food as junk, refers to sugar addiction, all these really harmful beliefs that are not in line with, you know, being a non-diet dietitian Mm -hmm. or intuitive eating. And... It's, it's such a shame. I would never recommend that book to anybody I work with just mm. because it is so harmful. That's I think that's probably one of the things, not just around diet, but I think particularly around diet and food and exercise is this idea of moral neutrality mm. that is so hard for people to wrap their heads around. Like just the idea that I have to have people say out loud, exercise is morally neutral. You are not a good or bad person because you exercise. Mm-hmm. You are not a good or bad person because of the foods you eat or the mm-hmm. the way you weigh or the way you look in clothes. It is morally neutral. They are clothes. Your body gets you from place to place. It is okay to eat. There are no good foods and no bad yeah. foods. But that idea of moral neutrality is, I think, where a lot of people, and it sounds like maybe that author, get really stuck, is we want things to be good or bad. We want to organize it. We want to make sense. This sea of neutrality is really scary for people to dive into. Yeah, yeah. we want to put things into into boxes, like mm-hmm. everything else, right? Something that I personally have been uh, working on of... Um, Re, reteaching myself that there's no such thing as healthy foods or unhealthy foods. Mm-hmm. There's just food. Um, some things make you feel better than others, um, and that's what you you know what you should go for for what your body feels good when you consume it. Um, and but yeah, there's uh there's st- we're still so stuck in the. Uh, if you exercise exercise and eat clean, that you're a better person, even though you're. An awful person to everyone else, <laughs> uh, but just because you practice all these things, uh, then automatically, you know, it, it puts you in that box in the category that like I'm better than others, yep. um, and that's so difficult to break away from those things. That that's what we have been taught all, all of our lives. You know, if you follow all these rules, then you're a good person and you'll have a successful life, right? Yeah, it is so deep in us Mm -hmm. and that's why it can take years you know people they want to know well you know can I get this done in three months six (laughs) months like how can I fix this and I want to say it's a lifelong process it you know there's absolutely a certain like a tipping point where it feels easier Mm. Um, but there's always going to be some situation in life that may be triggering to you know refocus on the body and blame it for the problems like if you're going through a divorce or you're having difficult you know stage with your children or you know you're struggling in school or something um, instead of tackling those problems in other ways mm-hmm. that are harder and more nuanced it feels easier for people to blame the body and go mm-hmm. well you know what it's time for me to start eating clean again let me do whole 30 again let me get back on the diet or whatever um, or let me go join this gym that's a lot easier and accessible to people unfortunately than you know fixing their relationship What's fixing the, their marriage what, it's, I just thought about that, that other program that I see very often especially at the beginning of the year it's just the hard 45 or hard, hard 75 hard 75 right there's like 
read so many pages in a book a day. Um, workout two hours. Workout two one workout inside. In yeah, and another workout outside. Punch it's like ferret daily. <laughs> it's like people people really want to like become. They think that these programs are going to completely transform their lives. And, I mean, I, I don't know what the statistic is, but, like, the majority of people, they 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 quit within the first few days because it's just not sustainable, you know? No. It's not realistic. But the program will tell them that it's not the, it's not the program's fault. It's your fault. Right. You don't have the energy. The you don't have, yeah, the willpower. You are worthless. You are shameful mm-hmm. because you can't starve yourself and do two workouts and you live in oh i don't know flaming hellscape of capitalism (laughs) like that's enough yeah yeah. right the underlying message is you don't want it enough Mm -hmm. exactly how about do you want it yeah exactly so as we um when we asked our some of our followers um what questions they will ask a dietitian so we saw this question in different ways very often but people were asking uh some suggestions for food for optimal brain health like uh to boost their mood um especially for working professionals people who um have to juggle different roles um kids family work internships um and to balance you know everything um that they have going on so any suggestions from a dietitian of things that you have experience or you have seen that, you know, boost uh, brain health and mood um, and make people feel good. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of suggestions for you guys. <laughs> now, my first one, this is not me being facetious, okay? <laughs> but to have optimal brain function and focus, you need to be eating enough food mm-hmm. and specifically carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are the brain's preferred fuel source Mm. and there's no way around it there's no hack for it Mm. there's no hack for eating enough food Mm. and so you know they do all these studies there's a really famous minnesota starvation Mm -hmm. study and what they noticed is cutting reducing calories in these mentally fit men like they the participants were chosen for their like mental robustness (sighs) um but doing i think it was a 25 percent reduction in calories yeah it was very small it's a very quote-unquote, reasonable number compared to the diets that we see. It led to such a constellation of poor mental health. And, you know, just things, basic things, like their reduced ability to focus, irritability, apathy, depression. Thinking about food. Obsessing about food, collecting recipes and cookbooks. And these were people who, that was not a hobby before. (laughs) One of the things, you know, I teach my clients is, if you're thinking about food, that's usually an early sign of hunger. Mm-hmm. That's not normal to be thinking about food all the time. A lot of people, they have this belief, oh, I'm a foodie. I really like thinking about food and collecting recipes and stuff. And it's like, mm, I think you're just chronically restricting. And so, yeah, food is really interesting. And it's a really rewarding hobby to think about it all the time because your body is asking for it. Um, so that's one of the recommendations mm-hmm. is just making sure that you're eating Eat enough, enough throughout yeah. the day. Yeah. And if you were looking for an adult, a professional to give you permission, this is your permission to eat mm-hmm. carbs. This is your permission to eat the food your body needs. Like, hear us as the voice of your deity for a moment. <laughs> Please eat. Yeah. And let me also add, if you're like, I already eat carbs, I'm fine. You are probably not eating enough. A lot of people have this internal rule where, okay, I can eat carbs, but I can only eat one serving mm. or one kind. Or just during lunchtime, dinner time, it has to be protein and veggies. And then you wake up super hungry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so people don't understand all the nuance of, of the dieting rules is they think, oh, I have permission to eat carbs. Look, I ate this rice cake. <laughs> it's colorful <for> rice. <laughs> I like, ate rice. I ate an apple yesterday. Like, what are you talking about? You know, I ate this zone bar before my workout. I'm eating carbs. I licked a piece of bread. (laughs) Look at me. Uh, um, And so, again, if you're still struggling, then try increasing how many carbohydrates you're eating. And then, you know, so other practical tips that I tell people is, again, 
my push for meal planning. Mm -hmm. If you are busy, this is going to be really valuable. I'm not saying go sit down and have to write out 21 different, you know, meals and snacks, but think about your schedule. So like for busy professionals or students, think about your schedule and where it really is going to make the most sense to have a plan. And so I remember in college, like that 3 p.m., you know, you have like that one late class. And that was just such like a witching hour. And I would just be so unsatisfied. And looking at it now, it was like, okay, I needed better lunches. Mm -hmm. I needed really robust lunches. And then I also needed to have a snack every single day. Not like a just-in-case snack, but like planning Mm -hmm. to have something really significant. Um, But the lunch part was also key. And so I find so many, the women I work with, they are so used to putting themselves last. Mm. They will see more clients. They will take care of their kids. They will prepare three different meals for three different kids, but they won't sit down and feed themselves until it's like code red, alarms blaring type of hunger, and then wonder why they're eating in such an uncontrollable, out-of-control mm. way. And it's, and in some ways, um, that has become like a batch of productivity, right? And like, I was so busy and so productive today, I didn't even eat lunch. I'm like, well, that's that's not okay. Like, you know, that you shouldn't be saying that out loud. Like, put yourself first. Yeah. We <laughs> we're so, so they want to be congratulated, and we're like, are you okay? Yeah. Do you like, need mm. help? Didn't somebody in, what is it, Silicon Valley come up with soy, Soylent? Soy, oh, Soylent soy Green, yeah. Like, like as something cool. Like, hey, you don't even need to get up from your computer anymore. Oh Just God. drink this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right up there with, like, the, the diapers for people who play lots of World of Warcraft. Like, listen to your body. Do the things it needs to function. Yeah. I mean, that's what capitalism wants, right? Us yeah. to be robots and deny our humanity. Yeah. And I think eating and, and sharing food with people is one of the best parts of life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, it does. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of the other day I was listening to this podcast. I think it was on NPR uh, regarding how um, in France, uh, lunchtime is so uh, like a, a respected tradition. Mm-hmm. Like you stop whatever you're doing and you not only have lunch, uh, but you, you're forced to leave your workplace right. to go, go somewhere home. else. And there's actually against the law to have lunch on your desk. Um, so it was like, there was a conversation, uh, with between, um, you know, it was someone from France and there was, uh, uh, an American woman who moved to, to Paris. Uh, for work and she had been working there for like five years or something like that and she she was sharing her story of how much she struggled with this mm-hmm. uh, because people were like even even looking her down like saying like wait wh- wh- why are you staying here like we have to leave the building for lunchtime she's like no I still have work to do and how like it how she struggled so much with with this and then even then when she stepped out of her office to go have lunch with her co-workers she wanted to continue the conversation about work during lunch and everyone said let's talk about this when we get back to the office we're not talking about work right now and how ingrained in her in just her mind how it was that uh not having lunch it was okay or eating lunch um on your desk when you're multitasking um and i think this is a very american thing you know like other cultures they just take a break like whatever we're doing right now can wait until we come back and you're forced to have an hour and a half two hours lunch outside of the office and do something else that is not related to work yeah give it that sacred space yeah would you guys say that's a boundaries issue (laughs) it's a lot of things issue i think the fact that it is appearing in other countries that don't experience the level of capitalism that we do i think really speaks volumes about the connection between culture and economy and food Mm -hmm. and the things that we sacrifice in the united states in order to keep a unsustainable economy moving Mm -hmm. um and now we you know imply other unsustainable behaviors on ourselves in order to you know supply unsustainable capitalism it's a mess it is a hot mess Um, the other thing I would also, you know, remind people is that how productive are you? Are you really firing on all cylinders if you are hungry and thinking about food? Yeah. And, you know, for certain careers, professions, can you model this healthful behavior, this mm-hmm. health promoting behavior to the people you're working with? Mm-hmm. Um 
I work, you know, I have a busy job, but I always, most days, okay, I'm not perfect. Most days, though, I am taking a half an hour break, which is like pitiful compared to the French. (laughs) But I am leaving my workspace and I am sitting at a table somewhere else when the weather's nice. I like to sit outside, but just enjoying food. And it really does change my experience of Mm -hmm. life. And the thing about the American work culture is nobody is going to make you do it. Mm -hmm. And they are going to imply that it's better if you don't. But that's a trick. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for Mm -hmm. it. You don't win anything. At the end of your life, nobody says, you did a really great job starving yourself. And I'm so glad you were skinny. And I'm so (laughs) glad you never came home on time and never had a joyful conversation at lunch and didn't enjoy what you were eating. Like, you don't, you don't win. There is no, it's a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, in corporate America, what do you get rewarded with for hard work? More work. More yeah. work. <laughs> Not even more pay, more work. Just yeah. more work. Right. So, um, so more about kind of is there optimal food for brain health? I also think it's important to remind people that food is not medicine. This is very mm-hmm. controversial. People okay. do not want to believe it. This kind of ties into that whole you're a good person and you deserve health if you eat in a certain way, look mm-hmm. a certain way, maintain a certain body weight. And that's just really harmful because that's not the reality. Like the whole your body is your temple. <laughs> if you eat the- garlic, then you'll never get diabetes. <laughs> There is, or vinegar is like this miracle cure. Uh, um, <laughs> oil pulling. Thank God. Now, I am a dietitian. I do believe that patterns are important. Mm. and But I also believe that dieting gets in the way of embracing a sustainable way to keep those patterns. You know, if you're only eating things out to avoid guilt mm. and not because you enjoy the flavor or the texture or whatever, you know, it's part of your culture, then that's not as sustainable as, you know, kind of thinking, hmm, like I've eaten a lot of like, I don't know, sandwiches lately, a salad sounds good. Mm -hmm. That is a way more sustainable, health-promoting mindset than, well, I have to get my salad in. I have to get in, you know, a bazillion cups of vegetables a day or else I'm bad and I'm going to die. And your body knows what it needs. Uh, It will tell you. It will tell you. Like sometimes when I go for a few days, especially when I travel, um, then I go for a few days without having veggies or a salad or something. Like I crave it so Mm -hmm. much. I'm like, I just want a salad or I I want veggies because my body craves it, Mm -hmm. but not because I'm forcing it to eat it just to make myself feel better. Like, oh, I had a salad instead of having the burger, you know? Yeah. I think... It takes time to rebuild that trust in yourself because Mm -hmm. diet culture has so effectively taught you that you are not trustworthy Mm. and that your choices are not good enough or they're just outright wrong. And so you have to have those actual lived experiences to start building that confidence, like having that experience of going on vacation and noticing like, oh, like I'm actually not, you know, just eating gelato all the time. You know, if you're going to Italy Mm -hmm. and I'm not just eating like I'm when I came home, I really wanted some greens or I wanted Mm -hmm. some, I don't know, chicken or something like that. Um, And also another important thing that I like to talk about is that nutrition is not like a meal by meal, make it or break it Mm -hmm. thing. Like it's not like every meal has to be perfect or else like you're on death's doorstep. You absolutely, there's flexibility to this. And there's also personal risk that you need to take into, you know, consideration what your Mm -hmm. family history is and what your, you know, individual diagnoses are. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you can approach um, in the intuitive eating world, they call it gentle nutrition. Like Mm -hmm. what type of things can I add? What type of things do I need to, you know, be mindful? Full of not restrict, not deprive, not count, but just have some mindfulness around in a way that my favorite word is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, there are folks who have a lot of legitimate barriers to or believe that there is a lot in the way of starting to make progress on intuitive eating or changing the way that they navigate kind of these thoughts, situations, and the needs that are in their household. Uh, what kind of things can you share? You know, we think of clients who maybe only have access to things like dollar stores that have very limited fresh produce um, or our dear social workers who eat out of their car um, or people who live in an area that has systemically been separated from food or lives in, you know, a food apartheid or, you know, mm-hmm. the USDA gentler term of a food desert. Um, what kind of things or how would you recommend that somebody looks at making a sustainable way of navigating that environment that they exist in. 
This is such a great question. I just want to say I'm not an expert in this, but I think that there is a lot of um, inner work that people can do to at least reduce the stress and guilt around basically what I think is you're doing the best that you can. Mm -hmm. And let's, you know, let's separate ourselves from the diet culture mindset that you're just a trash person if you're not like somehow pulling yourself out of poverty and making like yeah. four course Martha Stewart, Elman Lee Mariko type meals. Like mm. we just really need to let go. And so to me, that's a lot about self-compassion, mm. you know, understanding and recognizing that you are doing the best that you can within a system that's failing you. Yeah. Well, that, I think that also comes with that, that, notion of privilege that mm -hmm. we're assuming that everyone has access to all these type of foods whenever they want however much they want and the the reality is that a lot of a lot of us and a lot of the people that we work with don't might not have that privilege you know that access to the same resources so but also do they do they need all of that access all the time right. or is that white idealism and diet culture that's told us that only access to fresh produce only eating like this is the way there is privilege in there but also there's a whole lot of diet culture that's wrapped around the idea that uh -huh. that is what should be considered the most ideal to obtain. Yeah. Absolutely. That is a huge, that is something that they can actively do is work on destigmatizing their food choices. There is nothing wrong with using cans and frozen and dried foods. They are accessible. They are nutritious. You know, a lot of people sometimes worry like, oh, they're not as good as something fresh, but actually a lot of times they're processed right when they're pulled from the, from the fields. So the belief is that there might even be a slight nutritional benefit mm -hmm. of including mm -hmm. those foods. Plus they are affordable. Um, and they save a lot of time. Yeah. So, like, I no longer, unless I'm making, like, a specific recipe, like, for salsa that needs fresh onion, I buy chopped frozen onions. Mm. You know how much time that saves me? Mm. It saves a lot hey, of time. You, and you're not, <laughs> you're not crying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, using, there's so much wonderful, like, pre, like, convenience foods now, like, chopped, pre-chopped vegetables, frozen meals, like, you know, sandwiches already made, pizzas, uh -huh. there's all types of things out there. And if that is what you need to keep yourself fed, to keep your family fed, let's really destigmatize that, because that's the priority. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is absolutely privileged, and I think cruel, mm -hmm. to expect people to do more than that, mm -hmm. when we, they do not have the resources. Sources. Like what type of? <laughs> yeah, because we're we're be we are measuring them to this standard mm -hmm. of like this is what nutrition nutrition and feeding your family should look like. Should 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 yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to include like more practical stuff for like some people who have like food insecurity. Yeah, please. I don't think this is anything new to most people, but of course, signing up for any type of um, assistance. So mm -hmm. if you um, don't be ashamed, these are programs that if you qualify, absolutely get get the EBT, get the WIC. Um, mm -hmm. Those are two awesome programs. They're there for a reason. Um, the other things, you know people might know about are the food banks. They're just kind of operated out of different, you know, they could be more official venues or they can be like churches. Um, something kind of new that I'm hearing about are things like buy nothing groups on mm -hmm. Facebook. A lot of times, sometimes people do like pantry clear outs yep. and they might um, offer some of those items just to like first dibs or maybe they have like a specific, they might be asking for like single moms or something like that. Um, the other thing is... Um, I think you guys mentioned like going to the dollar store mm -hmm. and destigmatizing and just being okay and, you know, allowing yourself to enjoy those foods. And you can also buy cookies at the dollar store. It's okay to have a little bit of joy in your life. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we see it so, so often, like conversations about like, oh, the person in front of me at the grocery store was paying with food stamps and all they had was, uh, you know, breads and carbs and this and like there's the, the judging. They're poor of, children. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, why are they feeding their children? Like, they they can feed them whatever they want. You know, it's not just because it's not what you feed your children. It means it's wrong. Yeah. And it's just very, I think, 
uninformed because mm-hmm. a lot of those bread products are fortified mm-hmm. and they have really they have essential vitamins and minerals added to them um, and you don't know what their health conditions are there are a lot of people that can't exactly. digest fresh fruits and vegetables or whole grains like it actually is worse for them and puts them in a bad physical condition and so yeah there is just a lot of judgment and morality mm-hmm. and people you know it's an inside job you can lead that horse to water but they yeah. really have to start changing how they approach food their bodies um, and policing other people like can we just stop with that can we just stop with that (laughs) Mm -hmm. and as we are heading towards the end of our conversation or episode um, is there anything Mel that you want to share with our listeners um, that we didn't get to ask you you know something that it's very central to your work as a non-diet dietitian um, that you want to share with us? Your closing statements, please. Your clo- <laughs> we have two minutes. Oh, gosh. The pressure. <laughs> I think, you know, I just want to reinforce that general message. We have been misled. We have been told that there is a right way to eat. It looks a certain way. It's photogenic. It's mm. from, you know, it's from uh, freshly prepared, you know. From Whole Foods. Exactly. It's served at a table with yeah. fine china. Um, when really your first responsibility to yourself is to maintain being fed and nourished in the mm-hmm. best way that you can. You can always make changes and improvements to a sustainable, authentic way to nourish your body. But forcing it through a diet, I don't think is a sustainable approach. And I don't think that it feels good. Taking care of yourself does not have to feel like torture. It doesn't have to feel like you're pulling teeth. Yep. It can be fun. It can be easy. It can be low stress and absolutely guilt-free. I love it. Well, what a great and educational time we have had with you, Mel. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and if someone wants to connect with you uh, and follow your work and your TikToks and everything else that you're doing and all the resources, um, where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Right now, I'm very bare minimum. I have a Instagram and my TikTok that's at Ditch Your Diet, but there is a link. And in that link, you can reach out to a form to if you want to work with me. Um, and then there's also a free meal planning PDF download that you can do. And then I am going to, at some point, host a meal planning class. And so you can get on the early bird sign up for that just because I think it's such a great starting point for a lot of people. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. As always, all the different resources that Mel mentioned in today's episode will be available on this episode's page on our website at socialworkersbreakroom.com. Thank you. See you next time.